First, though, this is an ongoing story, and there's been a pretty major development to Global News reporting. The RCMP now investigating a possible criminal charge of public mischief. It's in connection to allegations made by Surrey's mayor about an incident in a Save-On Foods parking lot that took place last month. Global News has been barred from reporting the information. That's because of a B.C. Supreme Court non-disclosure order that was successfully challenged, though. The order is tied to a court production order that was served on Global BC by police on September 21st. That production order revealed that the investigation into public mischief it revealed the investigation. It also demanded a raw and unedited copy of an interview that global reporter Catherine Urquhart did with Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum on September 6th. Coming up a bit later in this half hour, we're going to play part of that interview. But first, we want to talk more about this investigation and what it means for the city. And joining us to talk more about that is Surrey City Councillor Jack Hundial. And Jack Hundial, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Joe. A lot going on here, and uh, some things we can report on, some things we can't. But what is your first impression on what has been discovered by Catherine Urquhart, by Global News, and this story about this investigation into a possible charge of public mischief? So, I mean, this this whole incident has been uh, really going on for quite, I think, some time in the background brewing, and there's been different spill-offs from it. The, the crux of the application that went into court uh, was public um, an allegation for the investigation in public mischief, which is essentially making a false statement that accuses someone of having making um, a false report or a statement to the police. So in this particular case, we know, um, and in fact it was on one of uh, Mayor McCallum's interviews, saying that he's the one that contacted the police. So one has to assume that it... Um, um, it, it perhaps is connected with that. Um, now, I haven't seen the investigation itself and heard bits and pieces, just like everyone else in public has, but um, it's very, very concerning if we have um, mayor of the second largest city uh, perhaps being the suspect in this. And if that is the case, um, let's not forget he's on the mayor, but also the chair of the police board. And in other similar cases, we've had elected officials that have stepped down at different points of the investigation. Um, uh, even during the course of the investigation. So that's a decision, I think, for Mr. Uh, Mr. McCallum to make and decide. Do you think it complicates things further? And here we have an RCMP investigation, and it's an investigation in a city where the mayor and the police board chair, as you said, is somebody who is actively trying to get rid of and ran on a campaign of getting rid of the RCMP mm-hmm. in that city. Yeah, my understanding was that investigation was turned over early on uh, to investigative unit outside of uh, Surrey RCMP. Um, and then with that, of course, is, uh, um, you know, where does that unit report to? Ultimately, um, this has gone out to, um, you know, the government to appoint a special prosecutor. So I think there is already built in uh, significant oversight uh, to address any of those concerns. Uh, and that was done on the front end, which I thought was a was a really good and smart idea uh, by the investigating unit. Um now, could it be could it be said that uh, that's the motivation behind it? I don't know, um, but certainly there's been other, uh, you know, um, transgressions. I think I'd say 
that uh, you know that uh, you know the Surrey RCMP uh, were not able to investigate simply because of this ongoing process with this police transition. Uh, so at this point, uh, as you mentioned, so the special projects unit of the RCMP's major crime uh, uh, arm is handling this investigation. Um, there's been a special prosecutor appointed to this lawyer, Richard Fowler, who's quite well known in this province. Uh, what do you say on on kind of even Surrey residents hearing about this and, and wondering what's going on at, at City Hall and what, what this is all about? Is it a distraction to what should be the focus of the day to day running of the city? Uh, certainly, I think it is a distraction, and I think this is where, once again, you know, it's another example where the public loses faith in their elected officials. Um, what is concerning, and what I've heard back from residents over the last few weeks that have gotten wind of this, even as I certainly hope it's not our taxpayer dollars that are that are being used to defend um, Mayor McCallum in this. So um, the other very telling um, comment that was made by some of the residents was, "Well, where's the rest of his team? How come they're not stepping up and defending someone? That's certainly, their their own leader." Uh, in this. So there's, there's a lot of unanswered questions. It does cause a lot of speculation. But, um, you know, let's let the special prosecutor do, uh, do their work. And if they do submit charges to Crown Counsel and are subsequently approved, then I think we have um, to deal with that uh, reality. And, and let's face it, we're less than a year away from an election. So um, really, we don't know on the timing of this whole thing how that's going to pan out. And you touched on this this earlier, and and I mean speaking more broadly, do you think that that an elected official uh, that's in a position, say an elected official anywhere that is in the position of the mayor of a city or the mayor uh, of a jurisdiction, uh, if there is a criminal investigation, if there is a criminal charge, is there a certain point at which you think that person it makes sense, or or it should be a, a rule, I suppose, that that person should step down, even if it's temporary? Yeah, absolutely. And it's another sort of gap in our uh, community charter where we don't um, really don't have those rules set in place to standardize it. So at what point do we say, okay, an elected official needs to step down uh, at the municipal level? Um, so there's a lot of gray area there. We had uh, cases um, uh, even uh, a few years ago with another local mayor which had to step down uh, during the course of the investigation. So I think there there is room for improvement there. Ultimately, it's up to the elected official uh, to make that uh, determination within, within bounds. Um, at this point, uh, would I be calling for Mayor McCallum to step down? I think it's something he should start uh, perhaps considering, depending on how this goes, though. And Jack, just wanted to ask you as well, because you do also come from a policing background. What would you say about kind of the threshold? What threshold needs to be met? And again, speaking broadly, if we're talking about an investigation into a possible criminal charge of public mischief um, in, in, in any type of case, what kind of threshold needs to be met for RCMP to even launch such an investigation? Well, I, I think that threshold's already been met. Uh, been already met um, for to get to, to this point as well, to initiate the investigation and have enough evidence collected to say, look, we want to turn this over to a special prosecutor uh, because we don't want to um, uh, be tainting the investigation. And the special prosecutor, uh, who's, who's a very, very well-known and said um, um, experienced special prosecutor, will take a look at all the collective evidence and make the determination, okay, you know, has the criminal code offense of public mischief been uh, satisfied, which is making uh, you know, false statements in this investigation. And if that's been, then it'll go over to uh, the Crown and, and the information should be laid at that point. But I certainly think that if if 
um, any elected official, because uh, you're really there at the public's behest, um, starts losing confidence in your ability, uh, you know, as whether you're uh, sitting as an elected official as a mayor or even the chair of a police board, that really causes significant angst in people. Uh, is the right decisions being made at the right time uh, with the right logic applied around it? And how credible are those decisions? That's what it comes down to. I know Surrey Council meetings have been a bit uh, volatile, perhaps, in the past. Do you think this issue will be a subject? Will this be brought up at the next council meeting? Uh, I don't know from my other uh, colleagues on council. Um, at this point, I will not be bringing it up uh, for a Monday council meeting because I still think that work of that special prosecutor needs to be done um, before uh, bringing it out there. But I think certainly as this investigation progresses, um, that's something that needs to be evaluated all the way along. And ultimately, like I said, it's up to the individuals, the elected officials, that if um, there's this heavy cloud hanging over their head, really, does it serve the best interest for you to still be there or not? And that'll have to be a decision that that those individuals have to make as time goes on. All right. Uh, Councillor Hundial, thank you so much for your time and for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Joe. Good afternoon. Thanks for being with us. We've been talking a fair amount about restaurants and how difficult it has been for restaurants throughout this pandemic. Many shut down to in-person dining, as you know, for several months. Uh, Patios open, expanded patios, and now having to require the vaccination certificate. One of many businesses requiring that certificate and ID for people to come in, whether it's inside or on a patio. For the most part, we're hearing from people that it's been pretty smooth. People have been compliant and restaurants have been very good in checking. We've heard about a few that aren't checking, but what about those who are and are getting a vocal minority coming out and targeting them? My next guest is Gaetan Brasseau, owner of Melange Restaurant in Nanaimo. Thank you so much for being with us today. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. What has happened at your restaurant recently? Well, it's uh, not only mine. There's uh, three restaurants, uh, and it happened in the night of the Thursday and Friday night. And we have the uh, the perpetrator on uh, camera. So uh, you got to understand, right beside my restaurant, there's a very small alley that uh, goes to a, a parking lot. So uh, from the uh, the camera angle, we see uh, actually two people. One kind of looked out, but then uh, disappeared from the camera. And the other fellow came in and uh, ready to smash window with uh, rocks and hatchet. And then he went uh, to, uh, to another restaurant, which is uh, one building, two buildings away from me. So uh, between myself and the other restaurant, Modern Cafe, there's a, a fairly large building with windows all over the place. Uh, but that fellow that went straight to that restaurant there and smashed the windows too. And uh, we heard later on that... Uh, Another restaurant, which is roughly like two blocks away from us, uh, got all the windows smashed also. So, you know, one restaurant, you know, you know that could be, you know, anything, vandalism, anything. Two, yeah, two, three, the same night. No, it's, a, it's not a coincidence. So we know where we're targeted. I mean, this is, a, to me, it's kind of obvious that person was targeting, you know, specific business. And specific businesses, how do you make the connection or how do you know that this was specifically against restaurants who are enforcing the vaccine passport requirements? Well, the downtown area is not very loud. We're not a, we're a medium city, so it's not like it's 30, 40 restaurants within five blocks here. Um, the three of us, we're enforcing that. And about two weeks ago, I did have some people 
that were really in my face. They were like, you know, telling me I'm, I'm an imbecile, I'm an idiot to believe all this, that, uh, you know, all that mantra that they're saying all the time. And they were very aggressive. So, you know, so two plus two. Hmm. And have you had many people, or, or when, when you talk about an incident like that, have you had many that are kind of opposed to it or making their, their opinions clear that they don't like these rules being enforced? Uh, the people that come to the door, I mean, again, this, uh, the one who came, they were very aggressive. That only happened once. Uh, maybe five or six times I had people telling them without vaccination, I'm sorry, but, you know, I'm following the rules. They just kind of roll up their eyes and, and, and turn around. So, there is, no, that was not, you know, it's not like a common. It's not, it's not something that happens every day by no means. Right. And for the most part, are people okay with showing oh, their, their I mean, vaccine? For the 99.9%, uh, you know, uh, we, we're doing a brisk business. Uh, and uh, everybody who comes in uh, really appreciate the fact that I do ask for IDs and that. So they, they're comfortable that when the restaurant is full, it's full of people who have been vaccinated. So yes, yes, absolutely. So with this damage, with the smashed windows, do you know how much the cost is or, or how much damage there is? Oh, I'm just waiting for my insurance there. You know, that'd be uh, between you know, somewhere around 2000 I suppose. That's got to be um, difficult given that it's probably been a very difficult year for your restaurant like it's been for so many. Yeah, well, like everybody else, we, you know, this was the best of time. Uh, obviously, this is an extra cost. I mean, it, 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 it's not so much the cost right now to me. It's more like, you know, it's really annoying that uh, somebody will go to that extent to target, you know, again, you know, I'm not 100% sure uh, until they, they catch that fellow there, but, you know, three restaurants the same night. Uh, and, yeah. You mentioned there's uh, surveillance camera footage yeah. of this. So uh, are police investigating? Yeah, they, uh, they were a bit slow on the start there, but when uh, they, that thing got uh, traction on TV, they, they, they released that picture very quickly after. Yeah. Hmm. And, and so what are you and the, and the other restaurant owners then, what do you do to, to brace in, in case this happens again? Well, not much I can do. I mean, you wake up every morning and hope that that thing is broken. You know, that's all you can say. I, mean, I had a lot of people who called me up, you know, supporting us and all this. I had people driving like an hour yesterday for lunch just to support us. I had one of my customers who gave me some cash to help me pay for the window. <laughs> Which I told him no, but I'll buy him a bottle of wine next time he comes in. <laughs> but you know that, and uh, and I was expecting to have a kind of a backlash a little bit on uh, on the restaurant Facebook page. I don't have a Facebook page personally, but the rest, and only have one person that you know the usual, like it's all a hoax and this and that. And so it's you know the uh, it's a very small minority, obviously, uh, who, who, who thinks that doing those things. The same people who goes out and you know uh, block uh, hospital entrance and that type of things. You know, I'm sure that's, but that's yeah. what it is. Yeah, I mean, it's just got to be frustrating. I mean, it's one thing to have an opinion, and if you want to protest and do that, but to take it a step further and to uh, go and deface someone's property or break their windows, uh, that's not okay. It is not okay, and absolutely, absolutely, it's not helping the people that for any other reason don't want to be vaccinated. Uh, this is not helping them either. I mean, uh, you do, uh, I'm sure a lot of people don't want to be associated with uh, that kind of behavior. 
Uh, do you have to hire security or do change anything, or is it a matter of now just keeping the surveillance cameras and oh, no, hoping the it doesn't? The camera is very clean right now. <laughs> yeah, hoping it doesn't happen again. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not hiring security. You just have. I mean, there's not much I can do, uh, and I'm not going to spend all night here checking out the, the windows, and so, no. So, uh, just hopefully that was a one-off. All right. How long has your restaurant been there in the Nanaimo uh, location? Well, uh, this one, we opened it uh, December 2019, so, but uh, I've been in Nanaimo for over 20 years. Uh, I had over four, I had four restaurants in this town, so, you know, I, 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 this is a place I know very well. Right, so and, it's and it probably not a huge surprise then that like that people are coming out in support of you and asking if they can help. Yeah, it's great. I mean, we have a great community over here, and uh, hopefully they do uh, the same for my other uh, two colleagues there, Danielle and Tammy from Modern Cafe, and uh, Jen and Nick from uh, the Nest Bistro. So we, we're small community. We all know each other. Right. And oh. we, and we, uh, the three restaurants that we're together, we, you know, we have common customers. You know, so we, so we, as I say, like. It's very nice to see the people around and, you know, supporting us. All right. Well, we'll leave it there for today. But Gaetan, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, sorry that this has happened to your restaurant and the others, but thanks for joining us to talk more about it. Thank you. And just people know Nanaimo is a great little city. Well, you might like Batman. That doesn't necessarily mean you want Batman living in your house or bats for that matter. This next story is about a Prince George couple. They have lost the fight. They went to court after finding out that a house they purchased in May of 2019 already had a few residents. Residents that lived in the walls, in the ceiling. They felt the previous owner must have known about this and should have told them about this before they purchased the home. They even had an inspection of the home and the inspection didn't reveal the bat colony either. Well, joining us to tell us more about this story is Emmy Jeeman, the uh, one of the owners of the house. Thanks so much, Emmy. Sorry, Emmy Van Jeeman, joining us to tell us what happened. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Uh, this is uh, quite a story and we'll take people back and give a bit of background. I'm sure a lot of people can relate to being a first-time home buyer, very excited. Uh, you purchased a home and then soon started seeing some droppings. What happened? Well, it wasn't even soon. It was immediately. Um, the day we took possession, when we first did our little tour of our brand new home, we found poop in the upstairs master bedroom. Um, and the ceiling used in the house, um, for a little bit of background, the house had a lot of cedar paneling in it, and the ceiling in the master bedroom, the cedar paneling had been removed, and there was just the uh, insulation and the vapor barrier. And we had not seen any poop in there when we were purchasing the house, and um, we'd done some inspections. And, and the day we moved in, we went upstairs, and we found all these droppings in the in the on the floor. So we thought it was nice, but. Uh, Apparently, it wasn't. <laughs> uh, so you thought it was mice. I understand you brought in a cat, uh, brought in mouse traps. They didn't find anything. Uh, so when did you figure out or how did you figure out that you weren't dealing with mice? You were dealing with bats. Well, so we did put down traps and we kept having to clean up the poop every day or every two days. And we actually couldn't move into our master bedroom because of the poop because it would have just been falling on our heads as we slept. Um, so when the traps kept um, being empty and then the 
the poop kept falling on the traps, we thought that we just had really, really rude mice, you know, yeah. like how dare they poop all, all over the traps and not get caught by them. And then um, my husband removed a board in the bathroom of the master bath, um, bedroom uh, and poop just rained down from the ceiling. And then we realized we were in over our heads. So we called uh, a specialist who works in um, uh, pest control and he came over and he walked in the front door and he immediately went to go walk down the stairs to the basement. And I said, oh, no, sir, the, the poop is upstairs. And he just stopped and he looked at me and he went, uh, you don't have mice, you have bats. Yes. What was your response when you learned that? Um, excitement and, and horror, because I think bats are wonderful. So I was like, oh, cool. But also, darn it, they're in my house. <laughs> so, yeah, I was, uh, it was, I very much like bats as a person and to be able to witness them out in the wild, but having their poop falling into my home, um, knowing that uh, you know, it wasn't mice, it wasn't some easily to solve problem uh, was very daunting for us. And so this then led to a a court battle because the question then becomes, okay, well, did the person who sold the house know there were bats living inside? And if so, uh, did that person sell the house and not disclose that information? So what happened when it kind of made its way into the courtroom? Well, there was a lot of things that were revealed during the trial that we weren't made aware of prior to us purchasing the house that should have been disclosed. But during the trial, the uh, seller of the home just kept saying that he uh, knew that there had been bats uh, present in an exterior wall of the master bedroom uh, in one year. And then the next year, he pulled out those boards that I referred to and found more poop behind those boards. And then he cleaned it up and he vacuumed it up and he looked around and he thought, okay, good enough. Um, And so the judge accepted that as, um, yeah, he did enough. So... We're stuck with the bill, even though our pest control experts said that they had been in there minimum five years. There was um, over 85 bats. Uh, We counted them multiple nights, standing outside watching where they were exiting from, and they just kept swarming out of multiple holes in the exterior of the house on the top floor. And then we would just lose count around the same number every night because it would get a bit too dark. And there were so many bats flying around that it was like, oh, is that the same bat? I don't know. So... And it's it's got a it must have been difficult too having covered a couple of stories with people trying to get rid of bats because they're a protected species. Uh, what did you have to do then to deal with the bats that you now know or now knew that they were inside the house? I feel like I'm almost a bat expert at this point. <laughs> Because of all the research that we did, I called Fish and Wildlife. I called the BC Community Bat Project. Um, I just talked to everyone possible to see what to do because the bats were, their excrement was falling into our living space. So that in itself is something that we needed to address right away. If bats are living in an attic uh, or in the exterior of a home and they don't have access to the human living spaces, you can usually leave them. But because the boards were removed in the master bedroom, they they essentially had very much access to our home. Had they actually just crawled in between the insulation sheets uh, and through the, the shredded vapor barrier, they could have just flown around our house, no problem. So we were advised we should wait for them to leave for the summer 
and then um, do follow all of the steps that was recommended in um, the guides that the government had produced, as well as other expert guides. We, we just kind of listened to everything. And so we did. We waited until the, the bats. We watched every night for a couple weeks in a row. And uh, we don't know if it was the weather or something, or maybe because we had been pulling the boards out upstairs, knowing we would have to deal with this. But we didn't disturb the bats. We just pulled the boards off to to get ready to deal with them in the fall. And then they, they left rather early and I called uh, Fish and Wildlife and I said, we, we haven't seen a bat in quite a while. Can we uh, go ahead and remove the insulation and try and deal, deal with this and plug all the holes? And they said, yes, you can. So we also did uh, a one-way exit device, which is recommended in the uh, instructions. So we did that. No bats came out of it. Uh, and so then we determined they were truly gone. We could also kind of tell that they were gone because you could actually hear them crawling through the ceiling in the evenings. We heard that probably uh, the second or third night that we lived there. Hmm. We could hear them scrabbling through at, at twilight. We are continuing uh, to talk about a case out of Prince George. It has to do with bats being found living in the walls and the ceiling of a home after the new owners moved in. My guest is Emmy Van Geemen, one of the owners. And Emmy, just before the break, you were talking about how you finally were able to get the bats out. It wasn't mating season. It was a time where you could legally get the bats out of the house. Uh, doesn't We know that bats like to come back to where they've set up home before. So how did you keep them out of the house? Well, we did the proper thing. We followed all of the directions that was in from the government guides. We also uh, found that the, the whole house needed quite a bit of work and when we bought the house our home inspector had notified like notified us of a lot of holes and um, curled siding and these apparently were all areas where bats could penetrate the home we didn't know that when we bought it of course but anyone living there who knew that bats had been in the house before should probably have known that so we removed the insulation because it was all stained we had thought it was water stains from an old roof that was replaced Turns out it was probably urine. Hmm. Um, and then we removed the insulation and we we blocked off all of the end of the box joists, I believe is the word, with a metal mesh so that they couldn't get through. We secured it. We filled all the holes from the outside. It looked ugly, but it worked. <laughs> and then we uh, installed spray foam because we were told that that was the best way to keep it's like a double whammy. Not only are we blocking it with uh, metal mesh, kind of like steel wool, which is what's recommended, but then um, spray foam is also recommended. So we figured we would go that route instead of doing it, you know, half arsedly and, uh, and potentially having them return or finding other ways in. It was clearly an established colony that had been making its way inside the house for many, many years. And they were obviously very persistent to get inside and that deep in the house in such large numbers. So we wanted to make sure that they could safely use the exterior uh, bat houses. We put up extra bat houses, as you're supposed to do, and put them in the right places. And uh, and then when we had it all kind of sealed up, then we kind of just waited the next year and watched. And it turns out we did a very good job because we followed all the directions. So, so how much money do you think you spent on dealing with this problem? Over 40 grand. Hmm. 
we kind of lost track. Uh, we couldn't submit a claim for 40 grand in the small claims court. So we claimed what we could. And do you think that looking back, even though the judge in this case ruled that the homeowner that sold to you uh, didn't do anything wrong, do you think there should be a rule that if somebody knows there's bats, that needs to be disclosed to new buyers? Well, there actually is a part on our disclosure statement that says that if there is any latent defects that could render a home dangerous or uninhabitable, that they should be disclosed. Uh, The defendant claims that he answered that correctly because he didn't think that there were bats there. However, if you had done even a cursory look, uh, looking behind the insulation, washing outside the house at night, um, even pulling back some of the boards in any of the home, as he did in the master bedroom, and he found bat poop, he never checked anywhere else. Uh, So... That should have been disclosed. Anyone living there who did their due diligence would have looked for the bats. He did claim he looked in an attic area on the opposite end of the room, uh, which would have been the north side of the house, and he didn't find any entrance points or poop in there. So the all the feces were found on the other end of the room in the warmest area and the highest peak, and he said he never figured out how they got in and out of there. Well, they don't miraculously appear. So if you'd done even kind of a simple look and pulled back the insulation, your face would have been covered in poop, just like it was with us. So, uh, yeah, so he says he answered that correctly, and the the judge believes him. However, uh, facts speak otherwise, and the judge also referred to it as a case of buyer's remorse. But we don't regret buying our house. We love our house. We adore our house. It's our dream house. We regret buying a house full of facts. What advice would you give then in this case where it wasn't caught by the inspection, you found yourself in the middle of this after the fact, uh, the courts uh, didn't rule in your favor. What advice do you give uh, to potential home buyers who will hear this and might be freaked out that this could happen to them? Well, to be honest, they rightfully should be freaked out. I don't mean to be an alarmist. However, this sets a very bad precedent. It teaches people selling homes that they can do any number of really awful things. And if they say they didn't know about it, then they can get away with it. Uh, So people who are buying houses, do your due diligence. Get your um, inspections. We did. However, the poop was behind the insulation. And home inspections are typically visual inspections only. We had no reason to request to look behind the insulation or look behind any boards. So we didn't. But do your due diligence. If something seems off or your inspector suggests further inspections, get them. That's what we did. We found a a lot of other problems that we were aware of and we thought that we were going in there with a lot of knowledge and being prepared for what we were dealing with. The tiny bit of knowledge that really would have been the most useful to us was that the previous owner knew that the home had been abandoned before he bought it and had found evidence of bats in the exterior wall and in the inside master bedroom on two different years. He also told the judge that he saw bats flying around the house every single year that he lived there. So that kind of information, I believe, should be disclosed. Even if it seems small to anyone who is selling a house, it's good to put that on there because then you're not responsible. We were forced to go through a lengthy court battle, which took six or seven days. Uh, I'm a nurse during a pandemic with two like baby twins and having to do all of this. 
Uh, and if he had just said, hey, man, sometimes I've seen some bats and stuff, we would have we would have potentially not purchased the house. But more likely, we would have asked for further information and we would have done some different uh, investigations. So people buying houses should do the same. If something seems off, get a professional to look at it. All right. Good advice. Emmy Van Geeman, thanks so much for joining us to tell us about this ordeal and what you went through. Appreciate your time today. Thank you. You have a good day. Well, you may have heard Von Palmer talking about this earlier today on Mornings with Simi. He's also written about it in his column in the Vancouver Sun, talking about the business plan for the replacement for the George Massey Tunnel. The business plan has been released, but as Von Palmer writes about this, it's a 100-plus page document. It's been posted to the Transportation Ministry website, but a lot of the details in that document have been blanked out. Well, let's bring in Ian Payton. He is the Liberal MLA for Delta South. Joining us now to talk a bit more about this. Ian, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Jill. Good afternoon. Uh, What are your thoughts on, I don't know if you've had a chance to go through all 100 plus pages of this, but your thoughts on on the business plan being released, but still not a whole lot of information. Well, Jill, I've had a chance to read Mr. Palmer's article. I've had a chance to breeze through the 100 page uh, business plan, which of course we've, everyone's been waiting in British Columbia for this business plan for almost a year now, and they finally came out with it with a great uh, splashy announcement about how wonderful this uh, plan was and that the tunnel was the better option than the bridge, which under our government, under the BC Liberal Party, the bridge would be uh, probably having a grand opening uh, less than a year from now. And $100 million of taxpayers' money had already been spent preparing for the bridge to be built. And the NDP killed it in 2017. And obviously, for vanity reasons, for political reasons, they did not want to go through with a a, a really good project that was well on its way simply because it was a, a, a project under the B.C. Liberal Party. Uh, what are your thoughts, though, on the, on the fact that if that bridge was opening up, if it was if it had stayed on schedule and was opening up, one of the issues I think that people do bring up from time to time is that it would have been a toll bridge? Well, you know, I guess originally before I became an MLA, I think uh, there was talk of being a toll bridge, but we've definitely took taken that uh, option away that we would uh, uh, fund it provincially and with help from the federal government, which they've obviously have said that they would uh, chip in to, to build this bridge. But I mean, the, the obvious point was that at at the time when the successful procurement for building the bridge came in at uh, less than $3.5 billion, actually came in at $2.7 billion for a 10-lane bridge that would not be told. And now what they're offering is a tunnel that will cost uh, as much or more for less lanes. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, this is typical NDP building infrastructure, uh, which doesn't make any sense, just like the fast ferries in the 90s, which was a complete boondoggle. Uh, and you kind of touched on this, but was there any way, though, that the, the NDP, the government, could have gone ahead with that tunnel, uh, being that it was a liberal project? And if it was flipped the other way around, uh, I'm sure a new government, if it was a new liberal government and it was an NDP project, uh, I mean, new governments of different parties tend to not adopt the projects of the party before, especially when they've been on the record saying they don't really like them. Well, I think what you meant is if they um, if if they had gone ahead with the bridge. Uh, I mean, you know, I like to think as my background 
in farming, we try and use some common sense. And I would think that the B.C. Liberal Party, if we had taken over government and they had a, a real decent project at a, at a good price, um, we would probably have continued on with it so that it would be completed and people could be, you know, driving through a new crossing, be it a bridge or a tunnel, in the next year or so, instead of at least 10 years from now under the NDP's um, future guidelines for, for putting this massive concrete tube in the Fraser River, which, by the way, is an envi- environmental nightmare. I mean, who, who does that nowadays with spawning salmon and sturgeon in the Fraser River? Well, do you think that it's going to pass then? Because when it was announced that they were going ahead with this eight-lane tunnel, it kind of, one of the criticisms was it takes it right back to square one. And one of the things that needs to be done is the environmental assessment. Do you see that delaying the project? Oh, absolutely, Jill. Uh, the environmental assessment was already completed for the bridge to be built. The permits were all in place. We had companies already, you know, uh, preloading the site, getting ready to drill uh, pilings for the future bridge, uh, moving hydro towers, etc. So, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, the project was well on its way. And, uh, you know, I, I certainly wish that had continued on because there's a lot of people that lost jobs just with the preparation for the bridge project that was going ahead. Uh, As Vaughn Palmer mentions in his column, he talks about the numbers that are uh, blanked out of this business plan, one of them being itemized cost breakdowns for what it's going to cost to build an eight-lane tunnel, uh, to do all of those things, burying parts of the tunnel in the river, the road network, the road works that need to be done at either either end. Uh, And it doesn't really compare either or give a clear comparison to all of those broken down costs compared to a bridge option. How do we know what what this is going to cost or or where things so how do we even begin to try and make comparisons when we don't have these numbers well jill exactly as you put it i mean this is actually turning into some sort of a an ndp scandal as far as i'm concerned uh why why don't we see the numbers why are they afraid now that they went to the mayors of metro vancouver they let the mayors of metro vancouver tell them whether it should be a bridge or a tunnel now, I don't know how many mayors in Metro Vancouver have any sort of engineering background, but, you know, why are they redacting all this information that, that the public can't see as to what the cost would be for a bridge, which, which already being, had been started, versus a tunnel? So I, I just don't understand this. Like, why would you – there's no transparency here, no transparency to, to the cost of doing this project. Uh, Vaughn also writes in his column, he writes, the business case does concede that, and here's, this is a quote, the delivery of the immersed tube tunnel has a greater risk profile than the bridge crossing. That's the end of that quote. He then writes that that admission is then followed by a sentence that is completely blanked out. Does it concern you? We have no idea what the following sentence was after that, uh, that, that line. It's laughable, Jill. I know. I I read that exact section section on uh, risk assessment, and it's blanked out. So obviously they feel that there's greater risk involved in putting a massive concrete tube in the Fraser River versus the bridge situation. And of course, with the bridge, all the pedestals supporting the bridge on on deep uh, friction piles would be on land. Nothing would be in the Fraser River. 
So this massive concrete tube that's going to go now in the Fraser River, and I always ask myself, why are there literally hundreds, if not thousands, of bridges throughout B.C., but there's only one tunnel in all of B.C.? So, yeah, the risk assessment is obviously being hidden from us because they know there's many more risks to environmentally and uh, structurally by putting um, a concrete tube in the Fraser River versus the bridge. Uh, So what do you do next, or is there any course of action people can take to try and find out more about this project or try and figure out what those numbers are? Uh, Well, Jill, we're going back to the legislature uh, on Monday, next week, and I can guarantee you that we'll be up in question period hammering the NDP government, the Transportation Minister Fleming, and the Premier of this province, Horgan, for another botched infrastructure project like they did all through the 90s. And, and this is another project. Like, what's actually gotten done since 2017 when they took over running this project? There's no infrastructure projects. There's a lot of talk, but nothing's actually been started. So we will be hammering them next week in question period. I can assure you. Have you talked to anybody with the Tawasan First Nation or heard from anybody about this, maybe not even since the business case was released, but since the announcement of the tunnel, given that the Tawasan First Nation had said repeatedly that their preference would be for a bridge? Well, Jill, I was kind of the most confused person in Delta back when they made this tunnel announcement a couple of months ago with Mr. Fleming, because um, Tawasan First Nations had told us all along that for environmental reasons, for First Nations, um, you know, love of, of the Fraser River, of salmon, of sturgeon, of ooligans, all the life, marine life in the Fraser River, they did not want to see uh, a, a concrete tube in the Fraser River. So it was a bit surprising when they were at the announcement that they have suddenly looks like they're supporting it now, but I think there's going to be some caveats to their support. All right. So, well, we will wait and see what happens next. Ian Payton, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. You're welcome, Jill. Thanks for having me. This is an update to a story we talked about on this program a few months ago. Not what the group was hoping for. A small fishing club near Merritt had launched legal action. It was a court case over public access to a pair of B.C. lakes, and the Supreme Court of Canada has refused to hear an appeal. Joining me now is Rick McGowan, member with the Nicola Valley Fish and Game Club. Rick, thanks so much for coming on the show again. No, thanks. I'm pleased to be here. Uh, So what happened as far as the appeal and trying to take this case to the Supreme Court of Canada? Uh, Well, what happened was um, we won a 20-day Supreme Court trial to um, provide access to a couple of public lakes. And in in reality, our club, we picked those lakes just as a precedent setting because we've seen that the B.C. government was enabling uh, large landowners to block access to public places. Um, by letting them illegally block public roads. Now, in our case, it went to the Supreme Court of Appeal of British Columbia, which completely overturned the lower court and um, actually ruled against four existing legislations in British Columbia. And so then we decided, okay, we would like to take it to the Supreme Court of Appeal of Canada, which we did, and um, they dismissed our case. And apparently they get four or five, six hundred applications a year and only um, accept 40 or 50. But when they dismiss your case, it's dismissed. They don't tell you any reasons or anything else. So you don't know why they decided or didn't decide, uh, didn't uh, take this case on? 
Well, I suspect they felt it probably wasn't a big enough case or, or in great enough public interest. I'm not quite sure. So where does this leave things then as far as the public having any access to these two lakes in question? Well, the way they've the way they've ruled it, and the way the uh, the Court of Appeal of British Columbia worded it, the one lake, Stony Lake, you're not allowed access to it at all, and Mini Lake, the other lake, you can go down a creek, you can put your boat in the creek and go to the public part of a lake. But but what's troubling about this case is not necessarily those two lakes; it's the thousands of other lakes that it could apply to. So what they've basically done is. Um, if a body of water is raised artificially or naturally over your property by a water license or anything else, and then you can say that there's water over your private property, you can be charged with trespassing if you go over that water over the private property, which it's bizarre, but they basically privatize water. And and do you think that that could happen then, that other lakes or access to other lakes in this province will be in jeopardy? Oh, absolutely. It's not just lakes. I mean, under the term in the Land Act, it's a public place are all land, waters, and streams. And the B.C. government has uh, adopted some policies which will allow large landowners to block public roads and access to public places, lakes, land, or stream. And therefore, that landowner can then manage that property for their own entrepreneurial use. Um, and in that aspect, the public is locked out. Um, and why the BC government is doing it, because they can offload the cost of managing those natural resources and let the landowner um, absorb those costs. And they they are trying to go forward with those policies, which affects every British Columbia. It's, it's terrible. <laughs> what, what would have been a reasonable solution, do you think, as far as allowing access? Could it have been something as simple as one road allowing access to these lakes, part of the lakes or all of the lakes? Or what would have been a, a reasonable outcome in your mind? Well, in this particular case, the Douglas Lake Cattle Company, they actually dug the road up, locked it and raised the level of lakes and flooded the public road with the full knowledge of the Ministry of Transportation and Highways. Um, in, in, in our situation, what we're trying to do is we believe that all British Columbians have a right to access public places. And in the future, um, the, the large, rich landowners realize the value of monopolizing, um, controlling public places. And what we're trying to do is keep these public places open for all British Columbians in the future. But unfortunately, and you know, I have to apologize, we lost the case. And in this case as well, I, I mean, to liken it to a, a David and Goliath type battle, we're talking about not just uh, somebody who's wealthy. This is a very well-known owner, uh, a billionaire that uh, clearly had the money to fight this. And and do you feel like that was kind of unfair or that played into this? Uh, absolutely. I mean, Stanley Kronk has billions. He's an American entrepreneur, and but he's... Um, aligned himself with the British Columbia government, which, you know, in respect, all the different ministries in BC, their mandate is to look after the natural resources for the benefit of British Columbians. And what they're doing is allowing, whether it's a a resident or a non-resident capitalistic type corporation to take control of, of British Columbia lands at the expense of the people of British Columbia.
I know this sounds ridiculous, but even given this ruling, the way things stand with public land versus private land, uh, privately owned land, if you were now, even given this court ruling, uh, if somebody was to helicopter in and plunk themselves in the middle of one of these lakes, would that be trespassing? No, it wouldn't. They've, they've agreed that the public portion of the lake that is not over private land is public and you're allowed to go there and fish, etc., etc. But what they've basically done by saying there's a strip of private land on their land where the water flooded is they basically put a fence around the lake, the public part, so you can't get to it. Right, unless you, and again, not that that's realistic, but unless you dropped yourself in by a helicopter or, I guess, float plane or somehow managed to get into the lake without getting there by land. Exactly, and, and it's the same respect to getting to crown, crown lands or streams or anything that are behind a, lock, a public lock gate. Um, they're basically taking control. Now, even if you can jump over the private land to get to the public land, then that's legal. But when they control the access to these places, they basically get the land for free. Right. I didn't realize that's legal. That So that wouldn't be considered trespassing in a case like that, even if you had to go onto someone's private property to get to the public property? Yeah, they're, they're saying, well, that, that is illegal. And we've never, we've never promoted crossing private land to get to public places. What we're, what we're trying to stop is the illegal blocking of public roads that go to public places. That's, what, that's what's existing and happening all over British Columbia. Right. So what happens now? I would imagine for a, a small fishing group like yours, this must have been an expensive battle. Uh, very expensive. I mean, our club has fundraised um, over 200000 and the court, the Provincial Court of Appeal awarded costs to Douglas Lake for the appeal, plus they've awarded costs to the Supreme Court of Canada. Um, and I don't know why, because they never heard the case, but Douglas Lake was awarded the cost, which we're supposed to pay. And bottom line is our little club doesn't have those kind of funds. And we, we have unpaid bills to our own lawyer for 200000 which we're hoping will be written off. Um, but no, it's a very expensive game when you start playing in the Supreme Court. Yeah, indeed it is. Do you know how much How much were you ordered to pay the costs for, for the Douglas Lake Ranch? Well, just for the Provincial Supreme Court of Appeal, we've got a bill in hand of 44000 plus another eight, so it's up to 55000 Plus, we, we've yet to get the bills from the Supreme Court of Canada, but they'll probably be similar. And then we also have our own lawyer that hasn't billed us for a couple hundred thousand but anyhow all of that we knew going forward but where we made our mistake is we were under the assumption that provincial law the legislative laws meant something but in in this courtroom the court has ruled against the laws in favor of the rich people and this is what we find completely bizarre so what do you do next uh, basically, we got to figure out how to pay the bills or maybe restructure our club so that it's a new club. Um, the, if you go to the Supreme Court of Canada, the Court of Appeal, that's the end of it. There's no recourse. Right. Um, unfortunately, there is recourse if you, could, if you could fund a private lawsuit against actual B.C. government for allowing them to block the roads or Douglas Lake for doing it as opposed to a civil lawsuit. I mean, there's that avenue, but again, you're looking at years and years of litigation and hundreds of thousands of dollars of cost. And if the courts don't have to rule according to the laws, then where are we as people of British Columbia? What are we left with?
Hmm, well, it's a, it's a good question. We will leave it there, though. And Rick, hopefully talk to you again at some point about this, if there's an update. But thank you so much for joining us and for talking about this on the show today. No, thank you very much. And like we say, we just we want to thank everybody that has supported us. And unfortunately, um, we were basically not meant to win.